This podcast number 811 with Peter Kazodoy is brought to you by Quint Studer, author of a new book entitled The Busy Leader's Handbook, How to Lead People and Places that Thrive. In Greg's interview with Quint, they talk about some of the topics covered in the book like reducing workplace drama, how positive recognition changes everything, facing conflict head-on, and becoming a good communicator. I am sure you will enjoy listening to Quinn as he explores the key leadership skills and behaviors that stellar leaders tend to possess while showing what it takes for leaders to optimize employee performance. If you want to learn more about Quint's tutor and his book, please visit his website by going to www.thebusyleadershandbook.com. That's T-H-E-B-U-S-Y-L-E-A-D-E-R-S-H-A-N-D-B-O-O-K.com. And now, for a featured podcast, please listen to Greg and Peter as they talk about his new book entitled Honest to Greatness, How Today's Greatest Leaders Use Brutal Honesty to Achieve Massive Success. Happy listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And joining me today is Peter. Peter, I got to get that right first, Peter. (laughs) Peter Cazadoy. He's an author, a speaker, and an entrepreneur. And Peter, tell us where you're joining us from. We always see that lovely background in there, and it's like, oh my goodness, my listeners look like they're saying they'd like to be there. Yeah, I live uh, right outside New York City in southwestern Connecticut, so I'm a long time sound. Awesome. Well, that background picture you have of yourself looks great. looks like either a nice sunrise or sunset. Um, But we're going to be talking to Peter today about his new book, called Honesty to Greatness, How Today's Great Leaders Use Brutal Honesty to Achieve Massive Success. And for all of you out there, it's a brand new release. Uh, It's a Benbella book, and it's on Amazon now. And the book is available for anybody to get. Um, And so I really encourage you, can you hold up the book? Peter, I, you know what? It's on I my shelf back there. I'm sorry. Oh, you don't have it. Okay. Well, it'd be nice if it. uh if we had the book, but for my listeners, just imagine that the book is yellow and black and it's got a little uh indicator in the middle of it. So definitely look for it. We will put um a copy of the book jacket on our blog as well so that you have it. So Peter's mission is to help people use the power of brutal honesty to achieve greatness in their lives and organizations. He spent the last 10 years building multi-million dollar companies, uh, landing him on the Inc. 5000 list of fastest growing entrepreneurs in America. Uh, now he regularly appears on media, to sh- uh, media shows uh, and leads strategic honesty workshops and events to achieve massive success. He's been on TEDx. Uh, he's spoken at Microsoft, CEO Clubs. Uh, he's written for Forbes, Inc., uh, PR Daily, Huffington Post. And believe me, uh, you're going to really enjoy this uh, interview with Peter about this because, hey, look, Peter, we kind of live in a world today which honesty has been bent. Um, Certainly has. And, and it's probably more than bent. Um, you're wondering where the heck 
are the moral leaders? Where are the moral leaders, not only in our country, but we see this happening at rapid rates inside of corporations. You see what happened at Wells Fargo. And we can go on and on and on and on and on with lists of companies that have had less than what I'm going to call moral, honest, and truthful leaders with inside their company. But in the introduction of the book, you know, Sharon Lecter states uh, that we love and work in a society where the phrase honesty is the best policy is usually followed by except when. Um, why is the value of honesty so important, not only in business, but in all of our relationships, especially in the world today that we're living in? I'm not saying that honesty hasn't been something that's been uh, jacked around with all throughout time, but it seems today with more media, more exposure, more people on Facebook, social media, uh, honesty gets totally bent. Well, that's the main premise of the book and what I want people to really understand is that, uh, you know, do I think that we should be like moral, ethical human beings? Yes. That's not why I wrote a book about honesty. I wrote a book about honesty because the difference now is we live in an extremely transparent society. Everyone has a smartphone. Everyone, someone, somewhere is recording what is going on. And the truth is coming out. You know, we have that phrase in the English language, you know, the truth always comes out. Well, now it really is. And if you just look back the past few years, you know, the college admissions scandal, uh, the VW diesel emissions scandal, the Wells Fargo fake account scandal, there was a story on the news just this morning, Theranos is back in the news, you know, they lied up and down. She was a piece of work. (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, but, but she did it, right? So we have this sort of weird relationship with honesty that we, we allow, we empower these fraudsters to do terrible things. But the difference now is there's too much transparency, too much information flowing. You know, the odds of getting found out now are so high that going forward, it isn't going to pay to do anything but be honest and transparent. And the many, many leaders in my book, CEOs of you know Quicken Loans and Sprint and Berkshire Hathaway and Bridgewater Associates, they've all figured this out and they use honesty, not as a touchy-feely core value, Greg, but as a business strategy to dominate their industry and achieve way more profits than their competitors. Oh, you know, I mean, you, you look at it and you look at places like Tom's Shoes, you mentioned that in there mm-hmm. as well. I think there's so many businesses that are really working very diligently at, um, you know, being extremely honest. Um, I would even say Tim Cook at Apple, you know, uh, granted, you know, you sometimes you walk the line politically, but his big honesty statement with Apple is, has got to be that we're not going to let people have access to the information in the phones. Right. I mean, he took a hard one on that one. So with that being said, how do you really define honesty for our listeners? I mean, there, there's got to be some way where we can put this in a little bit of a box and tell the listeners what your interpretation of honesty is. Yeah. So let's first debunk what it is not. Um, because most folks, you know, they hear what I kind of do and they're like, oh, well, you know, what do you want me to be like some asshole? Like say everything that comes to mind. And it's like, no, that's not what honesty means. In fact, Mm -hmm. 
there are two CEO, there's a CEO in my book that makes a, a great point, which is that if you're flying in an airplane and the pilots come over the intercom and they say, uh, you know, folks, we've never seen storm clouds like that before. Please put your seatbelts on. Not quite sure if we're going to get through this. Is that honest? Yes. Is it helpful? No. So instead, you know, we need to understand what honesty is good for. And what it's good for is trust. You know, that's really what's behind being open-minded and willing to admit fault and ready for change and all the ways that I define honesty. So what I found, Greg, was that you can actually, if you're going to use honesty as a strategy, you can stratify it into three distinct layers. And these are the exact layers that the leaders and organizations in my book follow to achieve their groundbreaking success. The first is we need to get honest with and about the level of community. In other words, what's going on in society at large? You know, how are we changing our norms and our social patterns and what's acceptable to us? I mean, there are all kinds of things bubbling up right now from systemic racism to gender bias to gender fluidity and you know, all these kind of things that are, that are kind of, uh, you know, representative of how our social norms are changing. We need to be cognizant of that. We operate in that environment. The second level, Greg, is being honest with and about the others around us. Now, sometimes we do need to be honest with the people in front of us, right? That is what we need to do. But other times we need to be honest about them, about how they're thinking, how they're feeling, how different their thought processes may be from our own, about what compels them to change and how we can adapt our own behavior to help others around us make changes that we know they need to make. This is where empathy comes into play. Right. And folks who understand honesty get really good at being honest about the others. And I'm sure we'll get to that a lot later. And the final step is getting honest with and about yourself, with your own biases and self-limiting beliefs as a leader. Because, Greg, in my tenure from, you know, starting up at, you know, 22, just out of college to eventually working with, you know, startups of the Fortune 500, I even threw a party for Warren Buffett once. And I will tell you that it was shocking to me that business is not run on logic. It's not run on revenues, profits, losses, spreadsheets, logic, sense, right? Instead, largely, it's run on ego and bias, and this is what the leader thinks or feels, and it's total BS. And I, no one prepared me for that. And what I ultimately decided with many of these organizations, I'm sure you'll ask me about some juicy stories later, is, is that it's an honesty issue. It's nothing else, but we are failing to get honest with ourselves. And in those moments, we're failing to see the changes that we need to make. Agreed. And, and the point is, is really it's internal work that has to be done. It's the personal growth that has to be done by the leaders of companies Mm -hmm. um, that are willing to actually, uh, the other day I was listening to uh, somebody from the Hoffman Institute. If anybody out there knows who Hoffman Institute is, it's where people go to get truthful in their relationships, mm-hmm. meaning their marriage relationships. But they also go there for other things as well, and it transforms people. You tell the great story you said about businesses, and this is Blockbuster and Netflix. Um, you kind of start the book off with it. Um, and it, honesty is the best policy, but can you relay the story for the listeners because this kind of exemplifies the differences. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy right? to. And it's, it's, you know, the opening story of the book, the opening story of my, my TED Talk for a reason. You know, everyone knows the, the, the basics of what happened with Netflix and Blockbuster, right? Yeah, we and know the financial basics. Yeah, and it makes sense intuitively. You know? yeah. What most people don't realize is that Blockbuster had years and years to do something about it. 
Netflix came and offered themselves up for sale. Blockbuster said no. Netflix came and has said, do you want a partner? Blockbuster said no. Eventually, Blockbuster said, you know, maybe there's something to this. Maybe we should like go compete with them. And they started up a program called Total Access. At its height, it had about 2 million subscribers, DVDs through the mail. They'd like finally gotten their act together. Right. And in came a, an activist investor who said, no, no, this isn't how Blockbuster makes money. Blockbuster is this kind of company. People love going to the, you know, the local store and getting their DVDs. They love paying all those late fees. This is what Blockbuster does. He fired the CEO, installed a new one, and in about a year, year and a half, they lost the equivalent of the GDP of Monaco. Now Netflix is worth, I think at last count, it was like 20 or 30 times what Blockbuster ever was. Mm-hmm. And so looking back at it, you know, many folks will say to themselves, well, those executives were just idiots. <laughs> they were just stupid, right? But when you think about it, you know, it was like a eight, it was a multi-billion dollar company. Like, are you really going to say that a multi-billion dollar company went out of business because they're stupid? I mean, we're talking about folks who have risen through the ranks to become executives, folks with MBAs and Ivy League degrees and experience and all this stuff. And so that's why, Greg, you know, what I ended up deciding was it, it's, we're the stupid ones if we think that, you know, we can just blame you know, folks in power for being morons. It's not the way it is. You know, anyone who rises through the ranks to become, you know, an executive has to be intelligent. I really do believe in my heart of hearts, it is an issue of they failed to get honest with themselves, honest about how consumer trends were shifting, honest about what customers are saying, what maybe their fellow executives were already knowing and thinking and feeling. And finally, they got, they failed to get honest with themselves that they needed to make a drastic change if they were going to survive. And instead, mm-hmm. unable to dislodge themselves from what Warren Buffett calls the institutional imperative, they drifted into oblivion. It's sad, but it happens all the time. It's happening today. Yes, and you know you see it happening today. But I think uh, the wake-up call, the whatever it's going to take, the the hit in the side of the head to wake up to that. Um, unfortunately, for some of these executives, took them way too long. It was an after-the-fact situation, and that's what you see happen. They ultimately do admit, you know, their biases, their challenges that they had. Um, but it, it's at a huge expense to investors, to stakeholders, huge. to all kinds of people. You know, our world today seems to be filled with dishonesty. Let's go to the other side. Uh, from CEOs to newscasters to politicians. I mean, look at the whole sex scandal thing, Matt Lauer. Oh, it, yeah. it, it, it was everywhere. Bill Cosby, who would ever thought, you know, what was going on there? So why do you believe it's so hard for many in positions of this power, right? Because really they are quite powerful. They're either controlling the media, they're controlling constituents that are voting for them and then voting in laws. Um, They're celebrities that people are looking up to uh, that aren't setting great examples. But the positions of power, why in the hell can't they tell the truth? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think the, the blanket answer is they're humans. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have a couple of, there are a couple of very interesting phenomena going on in our culture right now um, that I could talk for hours and hours and hours about. But I'll, you know, I'll say a few things. The first is you look at like human behavior, right? We've grown into a very advanced culture of animals who love to deny things like um, 
you know, our proclivity to want to have sex with each other, right? <laughs> we love to like pretend that like we can snap our fingers and those kinds of uh, desires like go away. So I think there's, we have this confluence of there's human behavior and humans wanting to do what humans want to do. And then there's social norms that come over the top of it that are saying, no, we're not supposed to do that anymore. And we know they're in conflict because if they weren't, if it were really that easy, then we wouldn't have things like sex scandals in the year 2020. What we've known for decades, this is wrong. We know we punish this as a society. We know it's bad. And yet it persists. You could say the same thing about things like sexism or racism or, or any of the other sort of things that we have real trouble uh, eradicating in this society. So I think at some point we have to step back and ask ourselves, what does it honestly take to create change? <laughs> you know, what does it honestly take to help people well, understand? I, I have a question along that line. Yeah. When you're speaking about it, you brought it up, the fact that people maybe wanted to have sex with other people. And one of my questions for you was really, it, it is very timely. A few nights ago, I watched Spite, Spotlight, the oh, movie yeah. Spotlight. If you've never seen it, have you seen it? I haven't, but I was okay. I lived in Boston through it. So, so so it's about the Catholic Church and Boston Globe exposes these hundred priests and their sexual abuse. How can one of the oldest religions on the planet continue to deceive the public about tremendous amounts of sexual abuse within the church? And what confusion does that cause for believers? Here's the point. There are people that have created a belief in an institution and the people in that institution that it stands so strong for those values that supposedly that institution withheld but falls so short of. Mm -hmm. So my question to you is, if you're going to change something and you lived in Boston and you saw what was going on, the key to that story was you had to get not to the priests but to the institution that was covering it up. Behind every one of these big players is an institution that continues to cover up and actually not tell the truth or be honest. Yeah. Again, what is, what's got to happen to the people inside these institutions that continue to proliferate this stuff? Maybe yeah. a redundant question, but it goes along the line with what the hell we're talking about. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, it exactly relates to the earlier question, which is like, why do people struggle so much, to be honest? And there's, yeah. there's yeah. protectionism, you know, yeah. there's, hey, I'm going to save my own skin, which, by the way, is what limits organizations from achieving success, right? Mm -hmm. They're more obsessed with protection than advancement. That's a problem. And, you know, unfortunately, I think folks confronted with this awful dichotomy of like, oh, we stand for like truth and light and we're abusing these children freeze. And instead, they would do so much better to reinvent, to come out with all of it, to make drastic changes and to show folks, hey, we know what's going on. Mm -hmm. We're fixing it. We are not trying to hide it. And it really comes back to the interpersonal. Like when I talk about honesty, as an, uh, using it as an organization, the idea is this. If I do something to piss you off, Greg, I'm going to call you on the phone. I'm going to say, Greg, I got to tell you this happened. I'm really sorry. And I suck. And I hope you'll forgive me. But if you don't, that's fine. But I really just need to come clean. Like, this is how we communicate. This is how we rebuild trust and relationships. Organizations can do the same thing. In fact, I chronicle many who do exactly that in my book and end up just crushing it for being 
brutally honest about what's going on. So what I wonder about, you know, the Catholic Church in particular is how much damage could they have avoided if they had just come out with it in the beginning, made structural changes, were really honest with folks, because it is the repeated abuses, the repeated headlines that shake people. Mm-hmm. We were seeing that in the presidential race, by the way, you know, mm-hmm. that there was a lot to, there was a lot folks excused and then it was a little less easy to excuse and a little less easy to excuse. And so, you know, it's, it's really a, it's much easier to rip the bandaid off. We know this by the way, cause we have that phrase in the English language, <laughs> just rip the bandaid off. Yeah. Um, and what I hope folks realize is that that actually is the way, is the best way to protect yourself. Well, I like how you put it in the book. You say that fraud is our fault. And the worst part is that most of us don't even know that we're lying. Now, that dishonesty is ingrained in us so deeply that getting it out will take a journey of self-discovery. What is the journey of self-discovery that you're recommending to our listeners to take to actually become brutally honest? Yeah. Well, I know, you know, before we uh, turn this on, you and I were talking about how important it is to make these ideas actionable. And I couldn't agree more. So I'm going to give you two questions that I want everyone, everyone at all times to be asking themselves, which is, is that true? And how do I know? Whether it's a headline coming at you on the nightly news, or it's your great aunt Betty's Facebook post, or it's a thought you have in your head, an assumption that you've made, a belief Mm -hmm. that you've harbored. Is it true? And how do you know? Because most often, Greg, unfortunately, it's not true in some way, shape, Mm -hmm. or form. And it is up to us to figure out what is true and then to act on honesty. Because otherwise, we're just going along for the ride. We're empowering people who don't uphold our values and social norms and do things we don't agree with. And it's it's up to us. We We need to understand our mind share counts for something. Every time we click something, watch something, give credence to a fact that's not right. true, we perpetuate the problem. You know, there there was an author, and I can't remember her name right now, so it's passing. It's been She's been on the show many, many years ago. But she used to ask, she used to have a whole seminar series and write books about two questions. Is it true that what you're telling yourself? And then her second question when she'd get them on stage and she'd put them up on the actually right on the uh, stage, is it really true, mm-hmm. right? Meaning, hey, you've told yourself a story. I think what happens is we like to make stuff up. Then we like to believe the stuff we made up. <laughs> yeah. And then we have to make up different stuff that we from what we made up to get ourselves out of the shit that we had originally made up. Uh, it's but like we're making stuff up all the time. What? 100%. It's like yeah. a tapestry gone wrong. It's it's just a it's a crazy thing how much stuff we make up, yep. right? Yep. And we begin to believe the stuff we make up, which then creates the biases that we've right. done because we haven't really questioned what we've made up in our mind. Mm-hmm. I use I got a master's degree in spiritual psychology, and it, it, the the question we ask used to ask is, do you have to believe everything you think? <laughs> you don't have to believe everything you think, That's but right. we think because we think it, we're going to believe it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it isn't true. It's like those executives you just said, who at Blockbuster, they were believing what they thought was right mm-hmm. without ever questioning it. And then you tell stories about their nose, 
vice and the shed, and you point out the biases that demonstrate how much we're willing to look beyond the surface and believe only what we want to desperately believe in is truth. Can you relay these stories so that the people can do, they can recognize these biases and the difference between truth and honesty? Because these were great stories in your book. I think everybody, well, not everybody knows Theranos, but you know, that girl I think was totally insane to be honest with you. And uh, yet, she had and yet very and very smart investors. Very too. smart. Yeah, she got of hundreds of millions of dollars out of people. Uh, the shed story, I didn't know. That was pretty cool as well. I like to so. tell I like to tell that one because not a lot of people know about it. And it's right. so, it, and all of us can relate because we all go out to eat at dinner at some point in time. So, you know, for, for many months, the number one rated restaurant in, uh, on TripAdvisor in this region of England was called The Shed. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when they first opened, they, you know, immediately skyrocketed to the top. And it was very difficult to get a reservation. You would call, they barely ever pick up. So this couple finally did get a reservation there. They were like pumped. They're already like tweeting about it and going on Instagram. Can't believe it got reservated. This is awesome. Right. Right. Usually coveted dining spot. So they go, right? They set off seven o'clock in the afternoon uh, in the evening. And they're driving through this residential area and coming up on the restaurant. I was thinking, this is kind of odd. I mean, there aren't a lot of restaurants parked in like, you know, the cul-de-sac of a residential area, but all the more, right? All the more uh, uh, psychological triggers that this must be good. So they pull up, looks like an ordinary house, um, and they kind of get out of the car and looking around. Then somebody that looks like a host finally comes out from behind the house, walks over and greets them and takes them by the hand, come back. Uh, their table was ready, so they were able to sit right down in the backyard. And they were situated between this this kind of ordinary-looking house and a garden shed. Garden shed was kind of run down, rustic, right? So decor was definitely fitting with the vibe. Uh, after what seemed like a while, food finally came out. And this couple's like snapping pictures and stories and sharing with all their friends. Awesome. Food wasn't that good. But, you know, they figured, what the hell? I mean, this is, this is the place. That's what TripAdvisor said, and all their friends couldn't get a reservation. So, uh, you know, at the end of the night, they went home, gave it five stars on TripAdvisor, and raved about it for the few weeks. Now, the best part is, the restaurateur's name was Uba Butler. Uba had never cooked professionally in his life. Uh, he had just basically turned his ordinary garden shed into the number one rated restaurant on TripAdvisor. In fact, the food tasted like frozen TV dinners because that's exactly what they were. And he was <laughs> able to get away with this for like weeks and weeks and weeks. And people just fell all over it, paying all kinds of crazy prices for this crazy experience. And it just goes to show you that people don't like they don't wake up to this herd mentality that's dragging us all over the cliff. Yeah. Well, again, um, if people were brutally honest, what they would have done is put, give it a zero star rating (laughs) and said, you know, the food here wasn't that good. And by the way, we sat out by an old shed someplace and they charged us absorbent prices for it. But because somebody had created this uh, sense of wonderment, that they were caught up in, they didn't want to be sucked down the rabbit hole and tell the truth, right? right. Well, they that, would have been that, a contrarian, you know? Yeah, but, you ex- know, you look at, exactly. this plays out all the time, right? Social proof is a very dangerous thing. How did we mm-hmm. start our, inter- our interview? Well, you read all these accolades that I have, and then Inc. 5000 Entrepreneur, an MBA from Columbia, and now people are like, oh, oh, this person's someone to listen to. 
Well, I could have been a bum off the street and I may have had the most enlightening things to say. So unfortunately, you know, we're all making these snap judgments right. in our, you know, snap judgment. I want the, the talking bullet points world. And it, it's hurting us, Greg. It really is hurting us as a society. Yeah. Well, to that end, you state that for the first time in human history, something is different about the here and now. And when it comes to the core value of honesty, what in your estimation is changing about being truthful and honest? Yeah, well, just the, the sheer amount of transparency. I, I, go okay. back, I go back and I tell stories of the Amun priests in Egypt. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it used to be that, you know, Egypt, like, like many other religions, uh, you know, you, you'd live a pious life. And if you did, then you would get into the afterlife, right? This is mm-hmm. a great way to make people behave in a, in a really good way, you know, right? Which we all agree is good. Um, but the Amun priests got wise to this. And they started thinking, all right, well, people want to get into this afterlife thing. We're the gatekeepers for this. Why don't we start charging admission? So they literally would sell pre-made scrolls, sort of tickets to the afterlife that if you were wealthy enough to buy one, you could behave however the hell you wanted. Get Mm -hmm. one of these scrolls and you're good to go. Mm -hmm. So in a world where we don't have perfect information, right? You have something I don't have. You know something I don't know. It's easy to have this sort of perversion between money and morality. It's much more difficult in a world where we can all go to Google and discover the truth pretty quickly. Um, and so, you know, it didn't pay back then to, to be transparent. You could hide everything and get away with it. Now, much more difficult. Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, I want to talk about conscious capitalism. And in that light, you mentioned Adam Smith, the founder of capitalism, and you speak with our listeners about capitalism and conscious capitalism, and how this will evolve businesses towards honesty, honesty, and in that light as well, what are these four pillars of conscious capitalism? Because, you know, you you obviously are very much a conscious capitalist yourself. Um, I always thought that the, the conscious capital movement uh, was was founded by the guy at Whole Foods, uh, myself, and I and I realized from your book that it wasn't actually him that started it. But he's one of the founding board members, yeah. Yeah, but he made it popular, I think, Mm -hmm. uh, right? So um, what is it about capitalism and conscious capitalism, the differences and these uh, four principles? Yeah, pillars. It, you know, it's a good question because it, it gives us pause to, to go back to what we said at the very beginning, which is that this is not, you know, an ethics and morals book. It's a how do we achieve outcomes book. I'm a capitalist as much as the, as the next guy. I love profit, profit. I do not say the F word, which is free. I don't say it. Um, so, you know, I'm all about generating sales, generating revenue. That's what this book is about. So what we have to realize, though, is that consumers simply know more than they've ever known before. You know, we have uh, folks my age, you know, millennials, and of course Gen Z, making purchasing decisions based on whether they, you know, a company pollutes a river in Zimbabwe. It's, we know that now. You know, we can track that data. So the more data we have about companies, the more we know two things. From an investor standpoint, we know what drives performance in a way that we did not know before. And we also know what drives consumerism, right? Consumer choices and decision-making behavior, right? Right. Those change based on the amount of information that's available. Uh, 
And so, you know, conscious capitalism is a perfect framework for us to think about how are we going to structure our companies around, you know, they have four pillars, which I think are helpful. One is, you know, higher purpose. What are we doing here besides making money? Um, Number two is stakeholder orientation. You know, how are we making sure we benefit all the stakeholders, not just the investors, but our employees, our partners, our suppliers, um, our planet, by the way. Uh, The third is conscious leadership. You know, Mm -hmm. having someone in power who is not uh, sucked into their own biases and ego and self-limiting beliefs, who's actually empowering the others around them to bring uh, choices and to to act on those choices. And I tell a lot of great stories in my books of cultures like Quicken Loans and Ritz-Carlton and more that are built that way. Um, And finally, conscious culture. You know, how do you set up a framework, uh, a set of values and beliefs within an organization and then actually act on those with integrity, not just posting, you know, our three crappy core values on the wall that everyone knows we don't really do. That's even more harmful than if you didn't have core values in the first place. Yeah, I mean, the point for any organization is when you when you do the purpose and the mission statement and the values is to live them and to have inclusion with the people that are working for you to agree that those are the same uh, values or they work in a department where there's values that are similar right. to yours. Um, that is the whole point of this. Now, you you talked about this just capital that was mm. formed by Paul Tudor Jones II, Ariana Huffington, Ronaldo Brudicall, who Ronaldo, I know Ronaldo, he's up in Santa Barbara, and Deepak Chopra. Um, what is just capital and why and why is this important in in doing this kind of honesty factor, the way that they've set this up to say, hey, look, we kind of vet these organizations and companies, right? So I I wanted to learn more about it. I didn't know anything about it myself, to, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would expect no less. Yeah. So speak about it. Tell yeah. the listeners a little bit more about the formation of this, what these guys are doing, why they're doing it, what's the purpose of it, yep. um, how they might even be able to get involved. Yeah. So Just Capital is a you know, nonprofit that was started to track what they consider to be just companies, right? Companies that act with you know, honesty, integrity, and all the mm-hmm. things that we'd want. Cleverly, they realized something very, very important. They got honest about something that many organizations actually fail to get honest about, which is that their opinions actually don't matter at all. The only opinions that do matter are the opinions of the American people. The American people are the ones who are consuming, who are judging companies uh, and you know, deciding how just they are or are not. So you know, what Just Capital does first is goes out to the American public and says, what do you care about? Do you care about workers' rights? Do you care about environmentalism? Do you care about, you know, what, what is it? And so the American public gives them a stack rank of issues that are important to them. And then Just Capital goes out and drives at the data of the largest companies in the U.S. to figure out which ones match what Americans care about, which ones are actually taking care of employees and actually taking care of the environment and so on and so forth. Um, And so it creates the Just 100, uh, the 100 most just companies out there. And what's fascinating, Greg, is, is, that it, would, is it similar to socially responsible investing? In that, yeah, it's, it's a in very that so they actually yeah they actually did launch their own ESG ETF, um, okay. which is a fancy way of saying a fund that uh, is comprised composed of you know social and economic uh, I'm sorry right. social and environmental type 
equities. Um, but yeah, completely. And what's interesting is that being just, you know, paying your workers more, uh, going the extra mile to make sure your carbon footprint's smaller, yeah. doesn't cost these companies anything. In fact, they end up making a more money, a higher return on equity than the yeah, rest of them. Yeah, I mean, so when it, you look at amazing. them, like Costco and Tom's Shoes and all of them, you know, it's they give uh, reasonable salaries to their employees. They treat yeah. them right. They give them great four hundred one k plans and benefits. There, I mean, if you really look at all the factors that you might be judging in that respect. Um, I did an interview not that long ago with a, a, a guy that wrote a book called The Amare Way, uh, which was about the love in the companies and how nice. having love in these companies really does affect the bottom line of the business, it right? Does. And so we're talking about being honest. So maybe it's being honest and having love and compassion with inside your organization you know, because we're at the tipping point of actually a whole new world here. We Agreed. see all these old structures being broken down and they're going to have to be rebuilt. Uh, and they're going to be rebuilt in a whole new way that doesn't include much of what we had in the past. Um, we also, in my estimation, I see, I think we're seeing the kind of crumbling, uh, just as my own personal commentary, of a great superpower, which was the U.S., which is not going to continue to maintain that status um, under current administration. And I don't even think with the change of the administration, we're going to see that because uh, we're looking for equanimity. We're looking for more of the world to become together united, right? Um, uh, I remember, and you might remember this again, more commentary, and then I'll get to my last question, Bucky Fuller. He said, if we spend more on living re than we do on weaponry. And that's what he did. He called it weaponry, meaning the bombs and the military and the forces and whatever. There isn't a person out there in the world that couldn't eat. There isn't a person out there that couldn't have electricity and running water. Yep. It couldn't have a toilet. It couldn't have what should happen. And that's where we really need to get brutally honest with ourselves is Agreed. You know, how are we going to make that happen around the world? Now, if you're going to leave our listeners with actionable steps, because we said this was an actionable interview, interview for our listeners, that they could take to become brutally honest with themselves. You know, this self-check-in. I love the question. Is it true? <laughs> you know, is it really yeah, true? Um, what advice would you leave them with in kind of wrapping this up? Where, where do you want to take it? Whether, let's say we've got a bunch of people that own businesses out there that are listening today. And I don't care if it's mom and pop business or if it's a multi-million dollar business. Yeah. What are you going to advise? Because it really comes down to it. You said it many times during this interview. We're human beings. That's right. And it's all about how we build relationships. Mm -hmm. And if we want to keep those relationships, we've got to have actionable steps to, to figure out how to do that. That's right. I want to talk about one relationship in particular that very few people ever think about, which is the relationship you have with your blind spot. Everything, when you think about like how we make decisions and take actions, that's all on things we understand, right? Like we mm -hmm. take in inputs, we see where we are in life, we make a decision, right? What we don't stop to think about is get honest about what might be under the surface, what might be in our blind spot, driving how we think, how we feel, how we act. And until we shine a spotlight in there, it's very difficult for people to make 
drastic changes in their life. You know, if people really want to lose 50 pounds, if they really want to make a career change, if they really want to restructure their business so it can go from 2 million to 10 million and 20, like it takes a tremendous amount of honesty and looking into the blind spot. Because if you knew what was there, you would have made the change already. Mm -hmm. The way I solve that, Greg, for for business owners, you, you bring up business owners, is I run what's called forum. Uh, once a month. In fact, tonight is, is one of my monthly forums. Uh, we get together on Zoom. It's 100% confidential and we get 100% vulnerable about what's honestly going on with our business, with and, our personal lives. And for my lives. listeners, not to interrupt, but we will put a link to Peter's. We're going to have links to all of this so they're not going to miss out. They want to sign up and come into one of your forums or join your forums. Yep, they can learn how to do that, right? Yeah, because I've not found another another way. I what I needed, Greg, to to get honest with myself. You know, my quarter life crisis at thirty, which is in the book. Uh, don't worry, um, was a group of other founders in a safe space where I could speak things that I was even pretending didn't exist in my own head. Right, mm-hmm. and once I was encouraged to do that and put it out on the table, it's like, oh, now I can deal with this. Right now, I've been encouraged to get it out there, and it's acceptable. Um, and we don't have that opportunity because we're too busy pretending to be, you know, Instagram fine <laughs> and everything's good. How are you doing? Right. Hey, Greg, how are things today? Good. Are they really good? I yeah. hate that automatic response. And, and yeah. in that automatic response, we lose a lot of the ability to build the relationships you talked about and to actually create meaningful change in our lives and businesses. Well, I think the memes, the, uh, the hardwiring of our brains, the way we've come along as human beings, I love the evolution. You know, there's a huge difference between our ages. Uh, obviously, people can look at the screen and see that. Um, but the reality is, is I think for consciously aware individuals at my end of the spectrum, we're loving seeing what's going on. Uh, we, you know, we, we really appreciate what this generation is doing to bring light to this. And I'm going to hold this up because I don't have the book. (laughs) So at least there's a little bit of something there. Uh, I would tell all my listeners, you know, please go out and get honesty to greatness. We'll have a link to the Amazon uh, page for this. We'll also put a link to Peter's website as well. And also for you to uh, link in uh, to his forums. Uh, We'll, we'll do all those and any other links that we get from Peter as well. Um, thank you. Thank you so much for being on. It's really refreshing, refreshing to have a conversation. And I think, you know, the, the brutal honesty, you know, about this pandemic through this whole time, we didn't talk anything about the pandemic. So I'm going to put a last little bit of commentary on here because I really appreciated what Bill Maher said just the other day. He said, if all these people had really gotten brutally honest and had advice for people getting healthy, And if Americans had started diets and exercise programs and whatever, because statistics are showing that people that are just uh, way obese are the ones that are actually dying from the disease and ones that are even somewhat obese are more susceptible to getting probably not dying. But the reality was, as he said, this was a health crisis, not a pandemic around that. And, you know, I thought that he said, but nobody, Peter, wanted to get brutally honest and tell that story. Uh, It was the rush toward the vaccine. It was whatever. And some of my listeners may say, well, they don't, they don't like Bill Maher. I don't really care because I believe now, again, it's my bias, but I do believe the statistics. If you want to go look it up, prove that 
They yeah. they say that that's the case. Uh, any last minute commentary on that? <laughs> well, there are a lot of issues with the pandemic. You know, yeah. one of the things I've I've been saying in a lot of the TV and radio interviews I'm doing is before there was a pandemic of COVID nineteen, there was a pandemic of dishonesty. Which mm-hmm. is why when folks said to America, hey, we have a problem here and we need you to do the following things and we need you to help, everyone looked at it and said, we don't know if we can trust you. Yeah. And now what's made it worse is, I mean, I just learned about an NBC news anchor that said he had COVID for five weeks and reported on that. Turns out he got tested five times, never had COVID. It's like, how do we keep eroding trust this way? <laughs> you know, yeah. It's yeah. only going to, what, what I worry about, Greg, in all of that is, you know, if you look at the numbers, look at the death rates, yeah, terrible. If you had a family member die, of course, it's horrible. Yeah. But statistically speaking, this, there are more contagious diseases, there are more deadly diseases. And when a more contagious, deadly disease comes around, and eventually it will, what are we all going to do? We're going to look at it and be like, well, you know, well, maybe it wasn't that big of a deal the first time. We didn't know who to trust the first time. We did the stats were all skewed the first time. So now I don't know if I'm going to listen to you or not. That's super, super dangerous. That's what yeah. worries me. Totally. I, I totally hear what you're saying. And the question is, is um, what's coming to mind for me is when's there going to be transparency and when are people going to wake up? Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know about the slap on the head of anyone else, but maybe it's just the slap on the head of ourselves. Totally. Uh, to question more things and to do more research do before more research. we just follow down the pathway and do it blindly. I mean, and that's probably the biggest bias is that blind trust that people fall into for some reason. And I don't believe it's always because it's weak. They're weak. I believe it's because of a lot of laziness. Yeah, um, it takes more time to do what you and I are talking about. It takes yeah, more time to put that into it. But I think you have to be willing to do it. And Peter, I'm going to just say it's been a pleasure having you on. Awesome interview. Thanks for your time this morning with our listeners. Everybody out there, go get the book. We'll put a link to it. Um, And you can go to Peter's website as well. It's full of resources, plenty of stuff for you guys to take a look at. We'll also put a link to that TEDx talk as well. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me, Greg. You're welcome. Take care.